The word champagne immediately evokes notions of luxury, special occasions, and celebration. We hear it, and often the first word that springs to mind is expensive. Champagne makes up a small portion of the world's fizzy wine production, though, so today, the Grog Shop's Patrick Driscoll leads Terry Robel, Grady Avant, and John Cottingham through a selection of sparkling wines from other places around the world. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. It's actually not true to say that all champagne is expensive, made by a very specific method, and is from the Champagne region of France, at least in the U.S. There are a handful of American wineries that call their product California Champagne, and they've done so for almost 150 years. The first major regional labeling treaty was enacted in Europe in 1891, the Madrid Agreement. It provided a framework for handling international trademarks and included among its provisions one that limited the use of champagne on a label to sparkling wines from the Champagne region, produced by the method Champenoise. The original agreement was limited to a small number of Western European countries, however, and the United States was not involved. This protection expanded to more countries after it was included in the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I and picked up signatories throughout the 20th century. Throughout this time, any U.S. producer of sparkling wine was allowed to call their product champagne. Most, at least the ones who wanted to be welcomed in European winemaking circles, voluntarily chose not to. A few of the largest producers, most of whom were involved in the birth of the American sparkling wine industry in the late 1800s and who were well aware of the benefit of piggybacking on the name, did. Things continued in this state with champagne houses irritated and American wineries unbothered until a 2006 agreement in which the U.S. banned champagne from new domestic wine labels. Anyone who had been using it before that date, however, was allowed to continue. Regardless of whether or not the word champagne is on the label, though, there is another hint you can use to find out about the potential quality of an unfamiliar wine. No one is required to disclose which of the various methods of sparkling wine production they use, the specifics of which Patrick Driscoll will get into a bit later in the show, but almost anyone using the technique developed by Dom Perignon himself in the late 1600s is quick to point it out somewhere on the bottle. Method Champenoise is only permitted on bottles of actual champagne where it is somewhat redundant. Other sparkling wine producers are restricted to the phrase method traditionnelle, or occasionally method classique, which all mean the same thing. Sparkling winemakers who use one of the other methods rarely advertise it. Even in a show which is explicitly devoted to talking about bubbly wines that are not champagne, the title of this episode is Sparkling Wine, Not Champagne. It is impossible not to talk about champagne. Every other sparkling wine, sooner or later, finds itself compared to champagne. Every other sparkling wine hopes that a little bit of the mystique of champagne rubs off on it. 
The food historian Magellan Toussaint Samat points out that in every language in the world, the word for champagne is champagne, and it often covers the local sparkling wines under its umbrella. So even though the next hour is not about champagne, be prepared. There's a lot of talk about champagne. So when we're thinking about sparkling wine, obviously champagne is what people go to first, I think, in their head. Of course, champagne is fantastic, though I think a lot of people don't realize still that champagne is a very specific type of sparkling wine that comes from only one place in the world. So I thought we'd kind of explore a bunch of different styles and from different places in the world. So first off, from Villa Santi, which is a really fantastic producer in the northeast of Italy. This is a really well-made Prosecco that I think is, one, affordable, two, delicious, and really outperforms its class. Then we can move into a Cava from Spain, from Miquel Pons, done in the traditional champagne method, actually aged longer than it needs to be by almost a year. It gives it this creamy roundness and deliciousness that I, I just love. Uh, so then we're going to move into from Gerard Bertrand, his Cuvée Thomas Jefferson, which which is a blend of Chardonnay and uh, Chenin Blanc, actually with a little bit of Pinot Noir thrown in, done in the Champagne method, done from the Languedoc Valley, as opposed to from Champagne itself. Just absolutely fantastic stuff and a great substitute for true Champagne. And Thomas Jefferson's one of my heroes. Uh, then from there, we're going to go into Johan Vineyard's Petnat, which this is a completely different style of creating sparkling wine in which instead of creating secondary fermentation, you bottle it while it's fermenting. You tend to get lower alcohol. You also tend to get a little bit more funk. I love these wines. They're not probably as universally popular because they do have that kind of funkiness to them. But I think that just makes them really cool. And then finally, we're going to go to rosé because rosé bubbles are some of my favorites on earth. There's a weightierness to them for sure. I think that extended skin contact gives them, it's not true extraction of tannin, but you get that anthocyanin release that gives them a little more structure. Um, and they also tend to be a little bit higher in acid. I think that helps food tremendously. And this, this one that we're gonna do from A to Z Wineworks is just fun. It's in a crown cap, so once you open it, you have no choice but to finish it. Uh, I think it's 90% Pinot Noir, 10% Chardonnay. Oh, okay. But Pinot Noir is their yeah. kind of bread and butter. And gosh, they just, they knock it out of the park with this. And for something that's under $20, I, I can't think of much of a better value in bubbles. So I have to make the food for this. What do you think I should, what do you think I should be focusing on? I actually, this morning while I was thinking about this, to see what you think, I thought about making Gougeres. Oh, Gougeres would be fantastic. Because champagne, especially with a little bit, with cheese that has a tiny bit of funk to it, works really well. So in order for these guys to have something to snack on while they uh, taste their sparkling wine, we're going to go with one of the classic accompaniments to uh, sparkling wine in general, particularly champagne, but also any other sparkling wine. 
Gougeres. Gougeres, all they are is uh, a cheese puff. They are made with a dough called pot which literally means cabbage pastry, because when they're, when they're cooked, they somewhat resemble little heads of cabbage. Uh, the most famous use for uh, pot dough, or choux paste, as it is often known in Anglo pastry kitchens, is as the shell for eclairs or cream puffs or profiteroles or any of those kind of things. But it's an incredibly versatile dough and it's one that you can do all sorts of things with. You can boil it and it becomes Parisian gnocchi. You can deep fry it and it becomes very similar to like a funnel cake. The actual most famous fried pot of choux Preparation is called pet de nun, which means nun's farts. You can pipe it into circles. You can pipe it into all sorts of shapes. There's a ton of different things you can do with it. You uh, you can use it as a binder for fritters, you know, like fish cakes. You can use it instead of like a bechamel or instead of a panade or mashed potatoes or whatever it is you're using in a fish cake. You can use uh, pot and you'll get a different texture. But the most famous and the most common is the baked version that we are about to make. And this particular version of the baked version is the gougere. And gougeres contain cheese. It's regular straight pot of choux with the addition of cheese. In this case, gruyere. And yes, in this case, for this kind of thing, it really does matter to use the good stuff. The depth and complexity and the sharpness of really quality cheese really does make a difference here. So I highly recommend that you attempt to get your hands on some proper gruyere or Emmental. Any of the sort of Swiss, like actual Swiss cheeses are excellent in here. You can use other cheeses as well. A lot of people will use like uh, Parmesan. This is classic, which is what we're going to be making today, is with Gruyere or, you know, sometimes Emmental. It's very simple and there's really only one thing people do to mess up pot And we'll get to that in just a second. So the basic recipe is very simple. This will make a pot for, you can upscale it, downscale it, whatever. And this is one cup of bread flour, a stick of butter, a cup of water, four eggs and everybody that hates me when i use the scales will be excited about this because this is just standard recipe you don't really need to make it much more complicated than that it's pretty much going to work every time it is pretty common if you're making something that is designed for a sweet for a dessert a lot of times people will sub in will add a little bit of sugar and sometimes sub in like half the milk for for uh water just to get a little more of that sort of caramelization going on but you don't even have to do that i mean i i almost never do I pretty much use this recipe all the time and, and it works really well. Oh, and a pinch of salt, obviously. So, get things started. I got my stick of butter and my water in a saucepan on the stove. And the first thing to do is to melt the butter and heat up the water. This is kind of a boring part. So the goal, particularly in this baked version, what you want is a crispy outside shell and very little on the inside. Inside is just gonna be some kind of webbing of a very eggy dough. It should be mostly a hole. Badly made shoe either doesn't puff at all, which I have seen, and it just stays in whatever shape you pipe it in, or it'll be sort of doughy and kind of heavy on the inside. What you want is at the end of it to sort of open up the puff or whatever shape you've piped it into. You wanna open that up and you wanna see mostly air. The way that this works in the oven is as the outside starts to cook, the inside generates a huge amount of steam and so it puffs up the whole thing. They, they get way bigger. In this case, we're gonna pipe them into very small little balls. They're gonna go in a very hot oven. The 
water moisture on the inside is going to convert to steam as the outside is drying out. It's going to puff out, and that's going to make all the sort of characteristic-looking little cracks on the outside and give it a really nice, attractive appearance on the outside. And the inside will be this puff of uh, mostly air. In order to get that to happen, there's a very critical step, which is the only way that people, when they make pot of shoe and it doesn't work, 99% of the time, this is the issue, which is they don't cook the flour long enough. So we're not gonna bring this up to a boil or anything. We're just melting the butter. And now that my butter is pretty much melted, we're gonna start cooking the flour. So I've got a cup of flour here to my one stick of butter and to my cup of water. My butter is well melted, and I'm just gonna dump my flour in and stir. And what will happen is that very rapidly the the flour will gather into a ball. So I'm going to stir, I'm going to stir, I'm going to stir. So now it's all pretty much incorporated. It looks like a paste. And now, what happens is some people stop right now. They go, oh, I've incorporated the flour. We're done. No, we're not done. Now we have to cook the flour paste together with the butter and the water because what we're trying to do is gelatinize the flour before we actually incorporate the eggs. And what this does is it builds the proper structure for the pot of shoe to expand. You'll feel it as you're, you're stirring it. The longer you cook it, it'll get stiffer. And that is the flour the proteins in the flour beginning to gelatinize and stiff up. And it's that that will help to create that webbing that you want and to support the, the pot of shoe as it puffs out. It'll keep it from A, not puffing out, <laughs> which is bad, because then you just get these little small, dense, not very appetizing chunks of dough. And it'll also keep it from collapsing back once it cooks because it's got a structure it's got a scaffolding that it can build on and as you cook it the dough smooths out and becomes a ball and it begins to really stick together and you can feel it get a lot stiffer you might want to you might ask like how long do i cook it and the answer is it's kind of difficult to actually overcook it the simplest way that i find to sort of know when you've cooked your your pot of shoe long enough is that there's almost like a little bit of a resistance when you try to lift it up from the bottom of the pan. Like it almost doesn't want to let go of the pan. And there's kind of like a little bit of a haze that, that's left on the, on the bottom. Like it doesn't come cleanly. It's better in general to overcook. I mean, you can't, it's, it's hard to overcook basically is the, is the thing. Okay, yeah, I'm starting to see, I'm starting to see like kind of a film as I turn it over. It's almost like, a very thin film of it gets left behind. And that is kind of the moment that we're, we're looking for. It'll also start to smell like a very characteristic kind of uh, flowery. <laughs> it's a little bit like a roux, you know? This isn't that different conceptually from what a roux is. It, in some ways, it's, it's just a slightly different form. Oh yeah, we're definitely there. Now I can see there's a little bit of a, of a like I say, a, a film on the bottom of the, the pan that when you run your spoon through it, I'm doing this with a wooden spoon, it leaves very distinct traces. And that, to me, is a good way of knowing that you've sufficiently cooked your flour. It's a very smooth paste when I turn it. When you first, when you first put it in there, it's not very smooth. It, 
It doesn't want to stick together. There's, it's lumpy, it's a little chunky. But then as you cook it, and it typically doesn't take a whole lot of time, maybe two to three minutes. It's better the first few times that you make it to cook it a little longer than you, than you might think that, uh, that you need to. The next task is adding the eggs. <laughs> the first thing to remember when you go to add the eggs, and I'm gonna do this in the bowl of my mixer with the paddle attachment. The first thing to remember when you go to add the eggs is do not add them directly after you've taken this off the stove. They'll just curdle and you'll be done. So what I like to do is throw them in the mixer and just beat them for a few minutes to kind of kick off some of that excess steam as well. Because the other thing that, that cooking does besides, besides uh, gelatinizing the starches and building the correct structure is it also drives off some of the excess moisture so that you don't wind up with a dough that's too wet and too heavy and that has too much steam and either yields a soft dough in the end or it's so heavy that it won't even, uh, that it won't puff up very well. So we wanna let this beat for a little while. And this beating part, this is kind of the thing that always made potashu a little bit difficult and sort of why it's associated with sort of high-end pastry is because before the invention of the mixer, like the beating part took quite a while. You know, we're also developing some, some more gluten in the flour so that we, there's, a, there's a strength there so that when it blows up, it won't explode. So you definitely wanna take your time in this part. And it won't look like, you know, a bread dough while you're beating it here in the paddle. Like it'll definitely have some stiffness, but it'll come apart in chunks. It's not gonna be like a single unit. So now I'm touching it and it's just kind of warm to the touch, which means it's not gonna curdle. I've beaten it pretty well. So I think it's, we're ready to add the eggs here. Turn it down and <laughs> I've seen great debates on whether to add, whether you can add the eggs one at a time or all at once. Uh, I just happen to be a one at a time person. Frankly, I'm not really sure that it matters that much. <laughs> Now you start adding the eggs, and now it gets to be this very beautiful sort of yellow color. And as you add the eggs, you'll see that now it starts to really sort of stretch out looking. When you, when you first drop the eggs in, it gets sort of wet, and then as the egg gets incorporated, the dough gets this real elasticity, and it begins to stick together. And I just need to scrape down the sides of the bowl very well. Make sure that I've gotten everything together and it's going to be a very sort of almost like a little bit of a rubbery kind of dough. It's going to have kind of a stickiness and a, an elasticity to it, which is what you want because that is going to provide the structure for the rise. Give it a good thorough beating. You want this to be a really stiff dough at the end. And uh, since we're making gougeres, I'm now going to add my cheese here at the very end. That's probably a solid cup of cheese. Good beating. Oh man, it smells like Gruyere now. Oh, that smells good. It's very stiff. It's very resistant to being pulled. So this gives me great hope that when I pipe this out and, uh, and stick it in the oven, it will puff up very nicely. My pastry bag. I'm gonna use a star tip. You can use plain ones too, they look just fine. Sheet of parchment. 
half sheet pan. Simplest way to load a pastry bag is to find a pitcher or, you know, like a deep, some kind of a deep container and put your pastry bag in it. All right, pastry bag is loaded. Work it all down. Again, this is a, it's a stiff dough, so make sure you take a little time to sort of work it to the bottom because you want to make sure it's all together and there's not any air pockets because air pockets will spurt and make unattractive shoe puffs. And I'm also going to turn my oven to 450 degrees. When you're making baked shoe, you always start with a very hot oven in order to generate the maximum puff. And then, after a bit, you turn it down to finish cooking because they actually do take quite a while in the oven. When piping shoe, it's really, it's a good idea to pipe a little bit out into the four corners of your baking pan and then put the parchment paper on top of that because this will, this is fairly sticky and it just helps keep things, keep the parchment from following you. Just gonna pipe, I like a, I like a generous size. When you're making gougeres, you wanna grate your cheese very thin, as small as you can. Ideally on a microplane, because the cheese can make the make it not pipe very well because the the cheese has a tendency to sort of clog up the work. So the smaller it is, the better. So I just piped 15 out onto a half sheet pan, which is pretty good, about what I expect. Now the baking technique for these is pretty simple. So I'm gonna start at 450 for the first 10 minutes, and then I'm gonna drop the temperature to 350 for a half hour. And then at the end, I'm just gonna turn the oven off and I'm gonna open the oven with a wooden spoon in the door, you know, just something to keep the, the oven door slightly ajar. And I'm gonna let them sit there in the oven, cooling down with the oven and drying out. A lot of times in restaurant situations, you'll make, the, you'll make your pot of shoe at the very end of the night and then leave them in the oven with the door ajar overnight and they'll get really dry and really crispy. Because if you pull them out of the oven too soon, then the outside is still a little bit, there's still some moisture in it, and if it starts cooling down too quick, they can collapse. So if you leave them inside the oven for the shell to harden up, and where it's at the same temperature as the outside of the oven, then the shell will harden, and you won't have to worry about the, about the pot of shoe collapsing when you pull them out. So that is at least an hour in the cooling down oven is, I kind of think, a minimum. I used all my already grated Gruyere in the... Uh, in the dough, so I'm gonna grate a little bit more because it's also nice to have a little bit on top. It'll get all crispy and crunchy the way that baked cheese does. All right, so we're gonna start with this uh, Villasante Prosecco. Ooh. Prosecco being, I think, the most famous sparkling wine of Italy. This one is specifically from one region in the northeast of France, which is kind of unique, especially at its price point. You mean point. Italy? Oh, in Italy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so to the northeast of Italy, and I think what particularly makes it special is Glera is the main grape of Prosecco and probably the best that's grown there. And this is 85% Glera. You can every now and then find 100%, but one, they're very rare, and two, they tend to be very expensive. And so at this $15 price point, wow. you get this blended with small amounts of Chardonnay and Pinot Bianco, but made bone dry. I just find this absolutely delicious. It is absolutely beautiful. It's a very 
light straw color. Mm. Mm. Oh, teeny, it's wonderful. Teeny usually Prosecco's. Yeah, delicate. Oh, it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. It is delicate. They're usually too sweet for me. Yeah. It's very it's beautiful. Clean, clean flavor. Very well, clean, I, I think it, Terry, I think that's kind of a misconception in that okay. Prosecco can be made all the way from bone dry, even drier than this, all the way to desserty sweet. Right. This certainly falls more towards the dry side, but I, I think most people's conception of Prosecco is as being a sweet, sparkling wine, and there are tons that are not. When you're looking for value, I think this is one of the places I reach to first. This is excellent. Yeah. Mm. Is it a popular drink when mm -hmm. people go for a sparkling wine? I think largely because I recommend it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's really But no, I probably nice. sell a case a week. There we go. What are the differences between how Prosecco is made and how something like, well, champagne? So this is not always the case, and Prosecco can be made in a really kind of wide range of ways. This is made in the Charmat or tank method. Mm -hmm. So where in Champagne, everything is done in the bottle. With this, they make a finished wine and then put it back into a sealed tank and add yeast and sugar so that it all ferments together and then under vacuum, bottle it so, so that it preserves that carbonation, but it's not carbonated in the bottle in the same way that, that champagne would be. So you don't get the same amount of yeast contact and the same amount of lees contact, but it's still made naturally. There are Proseccos, actually I won't name them, that are made by forced carbonation, which would be the same way that you make Coca-Cola. Oh, wow. Well, it's it's lovely. It's, it's, it's just says Sunday afternoon. No, it really does. And this for me is one of those wines that I always recommend when people are talking about mimosas. It's beautiful. Because it's delicious with orange juice and it's not so expensive that you're wasting it with that. But then if somebody doesn't want the juice, mm -hmm. you're still fine. It's delicious on its own. Yep. Um, I would like um, to see you top this now, please. I think I can. Okay. Really? I do. And the price point is just Perfect. Yeah, 15 bucks. Yes. I mean, given all of the energy that goes into making sparkling wine and the amount of aging and everything else that it needs, to put something out at this price point is pretty incredible. How long are these Proseccos typically aged? Uh, in this case, six months. So oh. not a huge amount of time, but you're still talking about pretty labor-intensive requirements during that aging process, whereas with a still white wine that you can throw into stainless steel and then straight into the bottle, you're talking about six weeks, not six months. The one thing I will say with this and with the one other wine that we have that's made under tank method, while they're fantastic when they're opened, they don't hold up well. Drink. Well, I don't leave a bottle open well, for very long, you know, and, and let it stay around. I no. Um, but not only do they not hold up well after they're opened, they don't hold up well after they're bottled. And oh. so if you come to some place like the Grog Shop where bottles are rotated and we make sure to keep stock fresh, that's great. But I always try to look for when was this bottled? Mm. <laughs> because a couple of years later, it would be flat. Oh. They, they just oh. don't hold up. And the same thing, if you put them in the fridge for an hour, or not an hour, I'm sorry, a day, they don't hold up. Even with the... Um Appropriate e even with an appropriate stopper, they really don't. Well, you know, it's such a, a light, beautiful, sparkling. 
And, and also, Drink, they're, they're low easy. in alcohol. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're not, I mean, this is something that if two people on an afternoon shared a bottle, you're right. not going to end up falling asleep at two in the afternoon. <laughs> no. <laughs> what Don't is the alcohol um, in this? I think it's 11 and a half. That's, that's, not, that's not nothing. But, but if you think about champagne, which is normally 13, 13 30, yeah. I, it, it's interesting to me that that does make a difference to me in, in the way that it hits. So you, you're saying this only spends, what did you say, six months, six weeks? Six months. Six months. So this was made last year? Yeah. Okay. How do you like that Gougere, Terry? It's excellent. <laughs> it's light. It's got lovely flavor. It's, oh my gosh, this is what it should be. <laughs> thank you for, for thank you. I, I'm, I'm so thrilled you had these. Second glass. Yeah. Okay, second glass. Okay. It's, it um, looks pretty much the same color as the last. Sparkling, maybe a little lighter. I've actually bought this a few times from you I have in the past, Patrick. This is one this. of my favorites, one of my go-tos. And it's very, very affordable. Yeah, there's yeah. a ringer here. Uh, Jeff invited me here. Normally, I'm more of a Guinness kind of person, but uh-huh. I'm here for I know, this is totally, but it, <laughs> totally but it told, different. It told me it's Sunday afternoon. Right. And it, Sunday afternoon is champagne or sparkling wine. And I had to ask him, uh, well, uh, champagne, what is the difference between champagne and sparkling wine? And uh, You don't know? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not really not that sure. I mean, well, to you're going to find out. Yeah, yeah. I always thought that if it was a regional thing, I thought sparkling was a state of Australia. <laughs> 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 well, I, I think Jeff covered some of this in the beginning oh, of the show. Okay. But champagne certainly has to come from the Champagne region of France, which is in the north. Uh, for a very long time, it was the northernmost winemaking region in the world. Now they make it in England. They, yes. <laughs> and actually, the, the Frenchmen making it in England are now arguing that they should be allowed to call it Champagne because their region has changed so much. <laughs> After oh. fighting so hard to not allow anybody else to call their wine oh. Champagne. I'm going to do it in England. Oh. oh, they do. Napoleon will be turning it in his grave. I, and actually, the mm-hmm. wines are brilliant. They, they really, really are. Champagne also has to be made by a very specific method in that you make a still wine, you leave the yeast in, you re-inoculate with essentially sugar water, but generally it's just unfermented grape juice. Cap it and let it re-ferment in the bottle, then turn it and, rid- and keep turning it and turning it and turning it. Riddle and turning it, it, right? And, yeah, riddle it in the winery. And then once all the yeast has settled to the top, you freeze it, you expel that, and then put the cork in. It is the best method to make sparkling wine. So, so the plug that comes out of the bottle is yeast? Yeah. Actually, just a kind of funny side story. You know, Dom Perignon was kind of the founder of the region of Champagne. And everybody always says, well, he created this style of wine. And what he was actually trying to do at his monastery was get bubbles out of wine. Oh, you're kidding. Because what was happening was that it's so cold there that they'd start wine fermenting, put it in the caves underneath the monastery, and it would get so cold that the yeast would die down. And then in the spring, they'd come back to life and bottles would start exploding. So he actually spent his career trying to stop bubbles in wine. <laughs> I remember my first taste of Dom Perignon champagne. I, it, I, all I could say was, it's like a thousand stars in my mouth. <laughs> it was amazing. Well, no, that, 
that kind of goes in line with the Dom Perignon's famous line. Really? When bottles were exploding in the cellar, he grabbed a glass just to see what was going on and apparently yelled to the other monks, come quickly, I'm tasting the stars. <gasps> oh. I did not, okay, Whoa, I honestly did not know that story, so. <laughs> Y'all are right in line. <laughs> wow. Sadly, the show doesn't have the budget for champagne. <laughs> or Dom Perignon. So we can, we can only make shows about sparkling wine, so. Well, we're doing a... We're, that, that was going to be huh? my next question, actually. So, in other words, like, it's the, the intensity of the work and the craftsmanship which goes into the champagne. That's a huge part of it. Of the expense. Another huge part of it is the cost of the land, mm -hmm. just like in Burgundy. Yeah. These vineyards have been owned forever and ever, but they've just gone up and up and up in value because the wines have become rarer and rarer. Scarcity dictates price. So let's talk about this. Yes. Okay, so this is... <laughs> yeah. Talk to me about this. This is Miquel Pons, uh, which is cava. So this is Spanish. Spanish. Mm -hmm. uh, made primarily from a grape called Thorello. Um, I love it. But also with Macabeo and uh, Perayera, which are grapes nobody's heard of. No. Because, you know, they're never on a label. Mikel Pons is pretty unique in that most cava is made in that tank method, like the Prosecco was, but this is actually made in the Champagne method, where it's fermented in the bottle, the, the exact same process that you would get from Dom Perignon. They're also unique in that the longer that you age it in the bottle before you disgorge it, the more lees contact, the more yeast contact, you get more flavor from that. I think they're only required to go six months, um, and these guys go a year and a half. This is excellent. Yeah. This is really it, nice. So is that is that yeast contact is that like what's responsible for the classic like bready notes in a lot of sparkling yeah, wine? Absolutely it is. Well, you can pick I mean, it up it, in here. Okay. You, you can definitely tell that the Prosecco didn't have mm -hmm. no. that. Yeast. It had a nice, bright, fresh. Absolutely. It was beautiful. Fruity floral mm -hmm. note. Yes. This has kind of a deeper. Yes. Bready. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, it's, mean, I, I don't it, I, I don't think it's as maybe not as sweet as the last one. I, I think, think actually, in terms of grams per liter of sugar, mm -hmm. I don't think this is any sweeter. Okay. Or I don't think this is any less sweet, I should okay. say. I just think the fruit tones of it mm -hmm. are significantly different. Yes, way different. <clears throat> and you get and you you were saying that they go longer too, and and I do that with my meads too. I, I let things ferment a lot longer at lower temperatures, and which brings out a lot more of those floral notes, like the richer, you know, kind of flavors of the the grape or whatever, the honey in my case. Um, so yeah, I definitely noticed that in here. There again, you know, your price point on this. 14 bucks. $14 Ooh, for a lovely little bubbly. And the last one was made by the tank method. This right. is a lot more. And this, this is more labor intensive. It's a difference of a dollar, does, but still we're talking about, the, if you're thinking about champagne, I don't mm -hmm. think, at least just thinking about the grog shop, we don't have a true champagne that sells for under $50 where you can get something like this for 14. Uh, that's, and it's just <clears throat> wonderful. And it's delicious. Do they blend uh, cavas and other sparkling wines the way that they do champagne to get like non-vintage where there's a house style or is this? Oh, like uh, yes. Louvre? Yeah, absolutely. Both of what we've this had so really far good. have been non-vintage. I think we're only gonna have one vintage wine in this bunch. And, and, and I can understand that as a wine, especially when you're making a sparkling wine kind of style where you want 
bottle after bottle after bottle, year after year, to be somewhat consistent. You know, maybe if I can pull a little of that 2014 and add that to the 16 that we just harvested. Crossover you, you can, right, you can, <clears throat> you can blend it to continue that style. I will say there's a lot of value to vintage sparkling wines and they're incredibly unique. Uh-huh. And they do vary from vintage to vintage. They also tend to be very, very expensive. <laughs> I mean, if you look at something like Dual Terry, you mentioned Vouve, you know, the regular yeah. yellow label is, I can't remember if it's 70 or 80 bucks, but it's right around there. Their vintage release is more like 150. Oh my goodness. What are we, like vintage, what are we talking? How many, how old it would be like a vintage? Normally, if it's true champagne, at least three years. Hmm. Mm. What, how long do you think the longest champagne could last? Well, I'll tell you, yeah. one, of, one of the best I ever had, and this was right after I started in the Crow's Nest, so that was probably 2007 was a 1968 Dom. <gasps> oh my gosh! I never and, thought it could and, go well, that long. They, they change. <laughs> Can you um, imagine what the price was? But in Champagne, they don't declare a vintage every year, do they? They do not. Um, although lately, because it's been so warm, they get enough quality out of the grapes that they declare vintages pretty That's much every year. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be about four in 10. Now it's probably nine in 10. Oh my gosh. The whole world is warm. I mean, we've seen that this summer here. So this one lasts a bit longer then? It, it does. Doesn't, it doesn't have the same problem that... I it does not. I, so it's a bit more reliable over a period of time. Mm, really also, and, and I don't know if you noticed it in the glass, but the bubbles on the first from that tank method mm-hmm. were fairly large. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, not club soda large, but <laughs> but fairly large. And, yeah. and they do disperse quickly. Whereas here you got... Smaller, right? And I like so that, that. Actually, that just reminded me of many years ago. There used to be a TV commercial for I think it was Corbell, oh. um, <laughs> and it had Don Ho in it. Oh. <laughs> and the beginning of the commercial, tiny and then, bubbles. Yeah, and he's singing tiny <laughs> bubbles, and then and then you hear somebody off stage, and they show the glass, and it's amazing. and it's bubbling. <laughs> And the, and then you hear somebody off stage off stage go the champagne's not Corbell and the song cha- and it pauses oh. and the song changes and he goes great big bubbles. I remember that, but I didn't know what that meant back then. But I thought it was really funny because my dad was laughing. And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. So now we have a new sparkler, same basic color, maybe. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I would say so. Pretty little. So. We weren't going to do champagne, but mm. what I think a lot of people kind of forget is that there are sparkling wines made in just about every region of France. But if it's not champagne, it's called Cremant. And this is Cremant de Limoux. I'm, okay, so I'm noticing the bubbles in this seem a little, um, like, I don't know, there's more. They're, they're tinier. There's more and they're finer. And they're finer, yes. Oh, good. I'm, I'm, I'm a good student. So this is from um, Gerard Bertrand. From where? Uh, Gerard Bertrand is, is the producer. This is from the Loire oh, Valley in France. Lovely. So it's a blend of Chardonnay and Chenin Blanc. Ooh, no wonder I like it. Done in the Champagne method, which again accounts for that kind of really fine note. It's lovely. But this is aged even longer than the cava. Mm. And honestly, this is treated just like Champagne. It's really beautiful. It, it's fantastic. and. I, I will admit I'm partial to it because it's Cuvée Thomas Jefferson and oh. TJ's my hero. This at $20, I would 
drink over most $60 bottles of champagne. But I think this has a much more sophisticated nose than anything we've gotten Absolutely. to so far. And the history of sparkling wine in France goes back obviously far longer than anywhere else in the world. They have a lot more practice, and I think that really comes <laughs> through in this. Um, and the reason it's called Cuvée Thomas Jefferson is that sparkling wine from the Loire was his favorite and what he brought cases back with when he left as ambassador to France. Oh. This is what he drank and what he chose to bring back with him from France, not champagne. When did the, uh, when did the reputation of champagne, like, become what it is. Oh, good question. Like, how did it become the premier sparkling wine region and everybody else get shoved aside? They were one of the first to really create a significant quality control system. If you made really crummy wine, you weren't allowed to, like, it, just like <laughs> port wine, where if you're going to call it a 30-year, there's a board that tastes it and says, Oh. This, ta this does taste like it should or it doesn't. Champagne has the same thing. And... During Napoleonic rule, they also raided all the vineyards. So there's Premier Cru and Grand Cru and just regular AC vineyards. And so you could make a distinction of this is entirely Grand Cru or this is entirely Premier Cru. But also, you know, France does, France's wine laws, though it, sometimes they can be a little bit arcane, they're there for a really good reason. And mm -hmm. so if you're in this specific vineyard in Bouzy, you can only get so much of a yield mm. per vineyard size. Mm. So you have to cut down excess grapes and focus the quality in, into a specific amount of fruit. And while that does exist in other places, not nearly to the same stringent control. So like in Cava, they don't talk about yield control. It's just, it has to be a minimum alcohol of this. But if you want to make junk Cava, you can dump a bunch of sugar in it. Oh. And get the alcohol up. That's different from controlling yields to get the same result. And I mean, Champagne, they, they do it right. They, <laughs> they've done John, it forever. John, what do you think about this? I think it's lovely. I think it is too. Uh, one of the things I've been doing recently while you've all been talking, because I really don't know much about it, I've been taking a little sip. Uh-huh. Notice how I'm almost down to the bottom of my glass. Uh-huh. And the bubbles are still hitting my yes, tongue. Yes, yes, that's what I yeah. like about it. And they're it. really hitting it hard. And that's a real... Is that, say, different, is that different from the first two? I'd say this one has a bit more of a pleasurable experience. Absolutely. Yeah, I, and I agree 100%. I, I think the first two are fantastic. <laughs> There's nothing oh, wrong with those. They're wonderful. But I think this kind of exemplifies why doing it for so long... Helps you get it Can right. I, may I see the bottle? Okay, I have a question. How about um, glasses that you're serving your sparkling and your bubbles in? I'm so glad you asked. I, 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 on glad. my way here, I was thinking oh, about this. I, I, I love, <laughs> you, were like, you were like, is he going to have mason jars? No, no, no and, I, and you know, I have which to would have been just fine, actually. I have to tell you, I have this amazing stemware collection. Tell me about this. So here's my take on it. The one glass I think you should never use mm -hmm. is a coupe, <laughs> which are, you know, the kind of old-fashioned mar mm -hmm. martini glasses, mm -hmm. because that dissipates bubbles as quickly as possible and makes mm -hmm. the wine go flat. And aroma, too. Like, you don't... It, it, you really can't smell anything yeah. out of it because they're so shallow. Mm -hmm. You can't lift it to your nose without 
spilling on yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I always find I end up spilling more with those. Well, yeah. you, well, especially the, the, well, yeah. are, <laughs> <laughs> the coops are the size of Marie Antoinette's breasts, breasts. or something. Yep. <laughs> yep. All right. Flutes. My I, nose hits the other I side. Do. I don't want I, to drink out of the Oh, good, good yeah, point. Should, this is a great I, glass that we're drinking. What it is. What's nice about flutes is that you have a really limited surface area at the bottom of the glass, so mm. that it holds bubbles longer. And that's nice if you're passing it at a wedding mm. ah. and pouring things ahead of time, or you're going to hold on to a glass for an hour. Mm-hmm. Who does that? I was going to say. Well, <laughs> it's certainly not me. <laughs> not that. <laughs> um, but. For me, the perfect glass is actually what Riedel calls their Riesling Zinfandel glass, which is a small white yes. wine glass. They're not so restrictive that you can't put your nose in it, you can't swirl, mm-hmm. but they're not so wide at the base that you lose all the effervescence so quickly. I'll admit that's actually what I drink just about everything out of, including that's okay. red wines. Yeah, I just I, it's because I like to pour an ounce or two, Absolutely. and then an ounce or two, <laughs> and and you can get all of those aromatics. And with in the case of sparkling wine, you keep all that effervescence, but you can still get the entire experience mm-hmm. without sacrificing either the nose or the effervescence because in a big glass you need to pour five ounces or six ounces to get enough to where you swirl it and you smell it that you get that full effect. I'm fine with you pouring more in my glass. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I noticed well, you have like you have these open right now. Like how long if you if oh, you've corked question. a bottle, how long can you kind of leave it open without the effervescence or bubbles with something of quality? couple of hours. Okay. You've got time. But I will say they hold their effervescence much better on mass, so in the bottle, mm-hmm. than they do in a glass. Less headspace and they can... Exactly. Okay. And something like the Michel Pons or the Thomas Jefferson, if you were to put a good champagne stopper on mm-hmm. them and put them back in the fridge, I think you, you'd be fine overnight. Well, the other thing to consider, though, when you're opening a bottle of bubbly... Now, if you're with somebody who doesn't want to drink it, that's different. But it is, next to Riesling, maybe the most food-friendly wine on earth. It is Um, amazing. I think, actually, this next wine is going to be an example of that. But Actually, I used to get this all the time when I worked in a steakhouse in New York. My wife hates red wine. Mm -hmm. But we're having a porterhouse. What should we have? And it would always be rosé bubbles. Mm. And it works perfectly. And I honestly, even straight up bubbles work great. I mean, across salads, seafood, chicken, you're pretty well set. And it's something that when I used to work in a restaurant where we only did tasting menus, and so I did wine pairings every week, I just stopped myself from using bubbles all the time. (laughs) Because it started to get to be a cop-out. Because it's like, (laughs) of course this is going to work. I do have a number of friends, obviously all of you included, who do like a bit of uh, the sparkling wine for breakfast. You know, there's whiskey for breakfast and there's sparkling wine for breakfast, isn't there? So now we have a um, pink bubbles. This, I think, is just 
a fun, easy sparkler. It's from A to Z Winery in Oregon. Oh, I love them. This is, they just call it pink mm -hmm. bubbles, or rosé bubbles, I think. Really? I love them um, too now. It's, I just tried it. And you know, you should put a raspberry in it. Uh, speaking of finishing a bottle or not, I like that they bottle it under crown cap, which is mm. the same as what goes on a beer. Mm -hmm. So once it's open. Terry just did something very interesting to my wine. She just threw a raspberry in there. I know. And it, it seems like one of those wines you could have a bit of fun with. It's not well, my favorite, though. I have to, like, this um, is... uh, me and the girls could drink a lot of this. Really? I, hmm. I, I think of this as not so much a food wine, mm -mm. which just a, a rose bubbles often on. can be, but this is, to me, Sunday brunch. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sitting on the porch. Oh, yeah. And actually, what do you, what do you drank this about? on the boat halibut fishing. <laughs> I, mean, right. I, I can taste the rosé, and it's really strong, you know, and I almost want there to be no bubbles, because I think the rosé is delicious. Oh, and that's I, I think the, the bubbles are, like, really confusing to me. You know, it's mm. like two things got together, and this is the, what happened nine months later. But yeah, <laughs> I actually, I, I do think some of what you're talking about, though, there with that disjointed note, mm -hmm. is that this is tank fermented again. Mm. We've gone backwards. In... in He's secondary fermentation style. Mm -hmm. I think just because of the weight, it was appropriate to put it here. But the bubbles are certainly less integrated. Yeah. And it almost feels force carbonated, though it's not. I yeah. just think of it as fun and friendly and easy. It, and, and that's perfect. I mean, actually, as John was saying about wine with breakfast, if I was having a bagel and lox, this would be perfect. On a day when I wasn't going to work or going to drive. <laughs> right? <laughs> when you're home. Yeah. I, I think this would be absolutely lovely outside. Mm -hmm. There are some rosés, I think, that are a lot more serious than this and deeper and darker that, to me, one, are more food wines, but also, to me, winter bubbles. Oh. And this, mm -hmm. to me, is summer. Oh, this that, definitely that says summer. watermelon, strawberry... Mm -hmm note in the nose, I just... Playful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, but not so playful it goes to Kool-Aid, which certainly there are plenty that can do. It has enough integrity to still be solid wine, but can be playful. How is it with the raspberries? I love putting fruit in my bubbles. It, mm. I put peaches in many things. I, I'm just... No, yeah. I, I, okay. as the wine guy in the room, I'd say, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Thank you. I love using sparkling wine as a, either a cocktail ingredient or uh -huh. or adding in non-alcoholic elements. Right. Because they're already lower in alcohol. I think a lot of times in the occasions that you're drinking them, you want to be able to have a few. Something like this with a couple of strawberries or a couple of raspberries oh, that you could sip perfect. on. And you could have a couple because it's only 11.5% alcohol. Mm -hmm. Over the course of a couple hours while you're out grilling or you're cooking inside, it's just fun. Also, I love champagne-based cocktails. Um, I, I, do. I, I should have brought some stuff to make one at some point, but, yeah. um, you know, a French 75 or something. Yeah. They're Maybe delicious. Do show with that. I know. I will, I will come back. <laughs> I'll sit here and drink with y'all. And yeah, let's do that. No, I'm really excited about the next one. Oh, we get another one. Yeah. We do. Oh, oh well, I'm. But the... I would dump the raspberry on this. Yeah, you're definitely yeah. not gonna want. Oh no, I'm not gonna put the raspberry. Dump is... the raspberry. I know Rob always gives me crap because I put fruit in my. Oh no, 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 no. This, this, this one I think is gonna be controversial. Just, it's gonna is be this the unfiltered one. Oh yes. Oh man, I'm so excited about this one. I am too. 
I've been hearing a lot about this one from many people. So have you really? Yes. One of my my unfiltered anything is my new favorite go to. Oh, this is really. This is even this is much more Johan than unfiltered. It's, and this is like the, uh, fermented on the skins, right? There's that. How this is that? I don't think this is. Ooh, mm. it's right. Oh, it's right. That one already, okay. can't you? This one comes mm. jumps. Ooh, it's a bit so different. Like I, said, I think this, this is going to be oh. controversial. I don't want to swirl it. I don't want to lose the bubbles. So this is. Really um, different. Petulant natural or petnat is what most Petulant. people call it. Um, it's really different. This is Gruner Veltliner, yes. which is an Austrian grape, but grown by Johann Vineyards in Oregon, um, who is a really funky, it is funky. natural winery. <laughs> but what petnat means is that... In <laughs> I'm just laughing at the faces <laughs> that are getting made right now. It's oh. perfect. In, in, this in is exactly what I was hoping would happen. When he, yeah. No, no, no. It, 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 I wasn't expecting this. No, no, I, I was expecting this too. I, I was expecting really? this. Really? Were you really? Because I love oh, yeah. Gruner Vettlinger. Yeah, no, this is. So, what Petnat is, is instead of inducing a second, like making the wine to completion and then inducing secondary fermentation, when the wine is fermenting, they just bottle it and they let ferm primary fermentation continue in the bottle. Hmm. It's a really wacky process in that you have no <laughs> control over what happens. It also leaves lots of sulfur, yeah. lots of kind of funky barnyard notes often yes, in I'm the wine. Yes, I'm thinking sauerkraut. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and often you, I, or I was, instead of sauerkraut, I would say sour beer. Yeah. Ah, it's yes. It's like cidery mm. and yeah. like, it's, it's yeah. Say, if it was cider, this, this would be the scrumpy of ciders. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it is, it does, it is kind of similar to a lot of the French sort of farmhouse ciders. Mm -hmm. that get yeah. Um, it's a completely different thing with sparkling wine and some people absolutely love it. I'm one of them. I would say more people absolutely hate it. <laughs> it, it, it. You know, it might be good with something like a... Um, Terry, you can say you hate it. Well, I don't care for it. <laughs> but I'm thinking, you know, it's probably really nice with a plate of bratwurst and sauerkraut mm. and mustard or yeah, cheese. No, no, I, I, I think these pet nut wines, I would sub in, in exactly in the place where I would do sour beer. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah. Sour beer also has a very specific audience. Mm -hmm. Well, but I'm, it's I am in your, I'm in that I, audience. Yeah. I love. Are you this. really? I am, I am too. 100%. Really? Oh yeah. No, I, you can have the rosé. Yeah. I'll have this. Oh, oh that's fine. No, hundred percent. This. Yeah. I got turned on to it when I was in Montreal. They're nuts for this stuff. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's got its a unique. It looks like it looks like you and John don't particularly care for it. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, uh, I'm not actually honestly. I, if, if we're split. Three to two, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I'm amazed. <laughs> I, I thought it would be you well, and me, kinda, and everybody else hated it. I kind of don't count because I'm weird. I, um, I think I enjoy it as it is. I think I'd like it with a nice yeah, bit of pork. No, no, yeah. pork with no, some berries. I do think these kind of more sour wines want food more. Yep. Okay. This isn't something you're serving as an aperitif. Mm. Yeah. No, the, it's a um, specific audience. The fragrance of it and the aroma yeah, of it yeah. is very, um, almost like fermented and mm -hmm. barnyard. Yeah. Yes, definitely, and very, very different. And um, I could, I could see where some people would like that. For what it is, this is incredibly well crafted. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. for again, under twenty bucks. 
And like the the rosé, it had a lot going on, but it was like I said, it seemed disjointed. This seems like a mm-hmm. very comprehensive. It is, you know, flavor. Like everything is kind of you know melted really nicely, neat. and that's perfect. <laughs> I think well, one of my favorite stories. This is champagne, but we were visiting this little tiny grower in Champagne the last time I was there, and we drove by. There were these three older gentlemen sitting kind of out by a shed drinking champagne and didn't kind of think anything of it. And we went up and the daughter who had taken over the house was giving us a tour and she said, oh, is my father still out there? Is he one of... One of the gentlemen? And she's, yes. Ever since he's retired, he and the two neighboring (laughs) guys, they'd all kind of retired together and transferred the properties to the next generation down. And every morning... They'd get together at six, have some cheese, mm-hmm. drink a magnum of champagne each, <laughs> <laughs> and go to bed at two. <laughs> is, is that what I'm going to do? I, I'm practicing for and, that, and, right? And they were all in their 80s, and I was like, that sounds perfect. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yeah. No, we call it. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. Patrick Driscoll from The Grog Shop organized and led today's tasting. Terry Robel, Grady Avant, and John Cottingham made up the tasting panel. The wines were provided by The Grog Shop. The theme music is String Quartet, Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebane. This is the fourth episode of the summer 2020 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.